Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. I am your host and your coach, Cody Boom Boom McBroom, here to coach you through your speakers, hopefully taking the science and educating you in a practical and applicable way. Today is a training Q&A. I decided that about halfway through because I realized most of the questions were training, so the next Q&A is going to be all nutrition, but today we're going to dive into training specifically, and I cover quite a bit of good content. Um, we talk about muscle soreness and how to alleviate that. We talk about volume and how to actually determine what your volume needs to be and where to distribute that between the type of reps you are doing. Uh, I explain the best way to train if you only have 45 minutes in the gym, how to cue properly, how to create tension inside of your muscles. I go through actual exercises and cue you how to do them better. So I think you're going to get a lot away from that. Um, men versus women training structures. I talked about a lot of stuff and we really dive into each question really in depth. So I think you're going to take a lot away from this one. And this is all, again, all on training. Guys, if you are new to the show, do me a huge favor. First and foremost, hit the subscribe button. We drop three episodes per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I want to make sure that you are updated on the latest and greatest content. You can also scroll into the description and do two quick things. Number one, check out our top four ranked episodes by the listener. And number two, grab your free guide, The Nutrition Hierarchy, which is going to teach you everything you need to know about nutrition. If you are new or old to this podcast, and if you love this podcast, most importantly, if I give you any value inside these podcasts, if I am teaching you anything, if you've gotten better results, if you enjoyed this show, please do me one huge favor in return. Simply take a screenshot, head over to Instagram, drop it on your story, and tag myself at cody.boomboom. I want to not only share it on my story, but I want to also thank you for being here and listening to me on the show. All right, without any further ado, Let's get on to the training Q&A. All right, so we're going to start with Andra Periak. Periak. Hi, Cody. I have a question about accessory exercises for the big three. Okay, so just to let mainly Andra know, um, I, I, let me know where you're from, Andra. I know you're not from the United States, but I think there was a little bit of a translation issue. Uh which is totally fine, but I'm just, just paraphrasing quite a bit. It was a really long email that she actually sent me um, using the Ask Boom Boom form, which, guys, I will let you guys know and again, especially for those who are new to the podcast. Remember that if you go to boomboomperformance.com slash podcast, there is literally a form where you can ask me anything. So it literally says Ask Boom Boom. Um, you put your name, email, and then your question. Your email doesn't go into some sales funnel. I promise you won't get bombarded with spam. It is so I can email you back if I need more details or if I have an uh, answer that I want to give you privately or if you ask me a question that doesn't want to be asked on the podcast. Let's say you want to be named unknown or it's more of a personal question you don't want blasted on the iTunes world, um, so to speak. So you guys can fill those out. You can ask me any question you want. I get those all personally. Now, I paraphrase this one, but she said, I have a question about accessory exercises for the big three. What are the best exercises to add support, supporting, to add for supporting? Man, I, I'm horrible at reading today. It's kind of early in the morning for me over here. I get married in two days. Maybe that's what it is. Letting you guys know it is Thursday the 8th. I get married Saturday the 10th. The day is almost here. I'm already married by the time you're hearing this, but it's early in the morning. I'm cranking out some podcasts before we get into full-blown wedding mode tomorrow. Super excited. Butterflies in my stomach. It's getting kind of crazy. Anyway, hi, Cody. I have a question about accessory exercises for the big three. What are the best exercises to add for supporting bench squat and deadlifts? How much extra volume should be added if the main lift is primary and takes about a half an hour of training? Great question. Um, the problem is I don't have a specific answer for you, and I know that frustrates a lot of people. And the reason I don't have a specific answer is because, to be honest with you, it just really depends on you. Um, so what I would say is the best exercises for each compound lift are primarily going to be things that mimic the movement pattern while improving your imbalances or your sticking points or your weak points, right? So we can look at this in three different ways. Um, let's say your squat, let's say you have knee, uh, valgus. So like your, your knees cave in when you squat, you kind of have this like buckle knee where your knees poke in. Most likely you lack knee stability in some way, shape or form. There's probably some kind of muscular imbalance inside of the leg, especially the side that's doing it, unless both are doing it could be in the hips too. But the point is, is you have some kind of imbalance causing this. 
there's a lot of ways to improve knee valgus specifically, but for an example, let's say that you lack knee stability and that's why you have a poor squat. I would probably recommend something like a pistol squat on a BOSU ball while balancing a kettlebell. Okay, I'm totally joking. This is not, <laughs> don't do that. That is not good advice. Please nobody do a single leg squat on a BOSU ball. Get rid of your BOSU ball. Um, no, I'm just playing. Anyway, um, I would recommend like a step up. <laughs> so polar opposite and not sexy and cool compared to the BOSU ball balancing pistol squat with the kettlebell. Anyway, um, if you do a step up with a very slow controlled negative, your knee really has to work on stability. You really have to work on balance. You have to really work on controlling the eccentric. Um, and you can create that I don't want to say instability because we're not trying to promote instability, but there is an instability factor there and therefore you have to create stability to fight through it. That's why there's a stress and an adaptation to get you better at that skill. But if you look at doing a step up on a big box, let's say that this is another good example. If you have knee issues, that might be a great issue. A, a pistol squat to a bench might be actually a great, uh, great exercise as well because you do have to work a lot on, and you can do those with a TRX too. Like focusing on slow negatives with a step up or a pistol squat is a really good way to work on knee stability for, to build your squat. But let's say that you have trouble coming out of the hole. You're great in the eccentric. You have a lot of tension. You can handle the load on your back. Your core is fine. But every time you try to get out of the hole, you have a sticking point. Now, that could be glutes because when you're in the bottom of the hole, if you can get in a deep squat past parallel, your glutes are in a very stretched position. They are going to have to fire. It could be hip flexor strength. It could be quad strength. It could be ankle mobility. It could be a lot of things that are suffering. It could even be core strength. You can't keep upright torso or maybe thoracic mobility. It could be so many different things. And this is why it's really hard for me to say because if you tell me I can't get out of the bottom of a squat efficiently – I'm going to say, hey, let's look at your thoracic mobility, your ankle mobility, your hip mobility. Let's look at your hip flex, uh, flexibility and strength. Let's look at your quad strength. Let's look at your glute flexibility and strength. Um, and then we'll go from there and we'll kind of tick down that line and whichever ones kind of throw red flags we're going to work on. And that's what I would suggest to you. Uh, but you can really easily determine that by looking at the movement itself. Like if you look at the bottom of a squat, what's going on? Well, your hip flexors are in a maximally flexed position. Your hips are maximally flexed in their deepest position, which means they're going to be maximally contracted and shortened. If you don't have strength in that shortened position, that's an issue. Your glutes are going to be in the maximally stretched position. The deeper you go, the more glute stretch there is. So if you don't have glute flexibility or glute, uh, if there's no lax in your glutes, like you have really tight glutes, that might be the issue. Um, if your hips shoot up, it might be core strength. It might be hip mobility. It might be your ankle mobility. If you can't stay upright, it could even be thoracic mobility. So it really depends. I would have to assess you, but I would look at the squat and say, what's going on? Okay, at the bottom of the squat, you have upright posture, T-spine. You got to keep your core engaged, core strength. You have to have strength in your hip flexors to keep them in that maximally contracted position, shortened position while keeping your glutes in the maximally stretched, lengthened position. Okay, I need ankle mobility. Okay, I need knee stability so I can create tension as I'm sitting down there. I need external rotation of the hips. So you really can't look at one thing. There's a lot, but you got to find your weak link in that all those things that I said and then go from there. In the bench, same thing. Pick apart the bottom end of the movement if the bottom is where you suffer. If it's the top, the lockout, that's pretty easy. Tricep strength, right? So you can pick exercises based on that. So if I'm just going to give you random exercises, like I really do like pistol squats, like a, with a weight vest on to a box, like parallel. Um, you can go below that, but not air squats, like controlling slowly to some kind of surface where you're actually doing like a pistol box squat, I think is better because then you don't have the tendency to bounce out of the hole. And I see a lot of that happening um, where people just drop into a pistol squat and bounce right back out. And I don't think that creates any tension and it's not necessarily good for your joints. Um, I love the step up at, at a high box. So if you suffer because if, if you suffer with your squat in the bottom, like that's the most difficult position, which is pretty common with people, they can lower it obviously and they can get a good range of motion. But when they try to come out of that bottom deep range of motion with strength, they suffer. Having a box step up that's above parallel is really smart because that puts your glutes in a stretched position. Like if your knee is above, if the box is above your knee, you have to create a above parallel squat position. If you look at your knee in that position, if you take the knee, like literally take the leg off of a human body who's doing a high box step up, it literally matches the squat. And that's why it's good because you have a above parallel femur 
angle, which means your thigh is past the parallel point. Your glutes are in a maximum stretch point. Your knee is likely going to come forward a little bit over the toe, which is good, practicing good ankle dorsiflexion. Um, and you have to come out of that position and you start in that position, which is really easy for people to do and then controlling it down. So I really like step ups quite a bit. Um, those are great. Bulgarian split squats are going to be great too. So if I just had to throw three out, I would say my favorite are going to be a pistol squat to a box with control, uh, a step up and a Bulgarian split squat. And those are going to be like pistol squat is lighter weight, really focusing on slow eccentric, more for knee stability. The step up is going to be moderate weight, really focusing on control, knee stability, and being in that deep position. And then a Bulgarian split squat is just a unilateral way to really load up the quads and the glutes and build strength in a unilateral position of a squat. So you're not putting a ton of tension on the back. Um, For bench, my favorite for bench uh, would probably be close grip bench press and triceps of death, which is a close grip bench press intensification set. So you basically do, you have a single board on your chest and you do close grip bench to the board um, as many as you can, then two boards, then three boards, then four boards, then five boards. And you basically go up the chain until you're just like barely doing like quarter reps. That's a really good way to build the lockout um, if you suffer from the lockout. And I think a lot of people do struggle with tricep strength inside the bench because your tricep are your elbow extensors. So every time you extend your elbow, your tricep is doing a great portion of that. So I think that's a really good one for the bench. Um, I like deficit push-ups because I think they're really joint friendly. Um, And if you can load them, great. If you can elevate your feet, great. But like creating a deficit push-up allows you to safely go into that deep range of motion to allow you strengthen that stretched and lengthened position of the bench, which I think is important. Um, Let's see. I'm not a huge fan of flies. I'm a huge fan of cable flies done really slow with lightweight for high reps just for the pump, but I don't think that's a very good bench accessory. I think that's a great bodybuilding exercise. Definitely going to go triceps of death or close grip. I would definitely go deficit push-ups. I like dips, but for dips, they're kind of 50-50. For some people, they bug their shoulders because it puts them in a funky position. So I wouldn't put that out there. Um, that's why I said deficit push-ups instead. Man, that's hard. I would actually say regular dumbbell bench press. I think a lot of people just barbell bench, barbell bench, barbell bench. If we're talking about adding some volume to build the muscle of the chest, therefore to just get bigger and or build muscle, you build the muscle, usually a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. It's a long old saying, but I believe there's merit to it. Um, I think dumbbell bench press trumps barbell bench press for, for hypertrophy, to be honest with you, because I think that you can create so much more tension in your chest more easily with a dumbbell press than you can a barbell bench press. Um, I know for me, I have the way my split is set up and just a little teaser September 9th, we're going to be releasing a new program. that's going to change the game. I honestly think this program is going to be not only the best program I have ever released to the public, but the most versatile. And it's going to be something that coaches can use for their clients as well. It's, it's honestly going to be insane. Like you guys are going to be so stoked to see this. I, I can't say too much because I don't want to give it away, but like what it's going to be is going to be, I don't like saying revolutionary because I think you have to cre- literally create something so out there to be revolutionary, but it's going to be different. And it's going to be something pretty fucking nuts. Um, but anyway, um, the split I've been playing around with is somewhat similar to the program we're going to be putting out. Um, and I have a heavy bench day and I have a light bench day. Um, and it's more of like a heavy push, light push, or more like a heavy upper body, lighter upper body kind of thing, kind of like conjugate, but it's different than conjugate because there's, yeah, it's a long story. I don't want to give it away, but um, one of the days is a barbell bench press and I'm not doing it to create a pump. I'm not doing it to build muscle. I'm doing it to build strength. It's neurological. The other day I'm specifically doing dumbbell bench press because it creates so much more tension and I can position the dumbbells at the right angle for my biomechanics. And I think that's the big thing here. So that's why I would pick the dumbbell bench press because I think barbell bench press is a lot of anterior delts as well. And people will crush their delts doing barbell bench presses. And you really can't manipulate your grip to match your uh, joint positioning and your biomechanics, your limb length, so on and so forth. So with a dumbbell, I can pull my lats down. I can pull my shoulders down. I can actually bring the dumbbell further down 
from my shoulders, so it's not directly above my shoulders, I can turn my grip and my elbow position to about a 45 degree angle, and I can really focus on placing my elbow in the right position during the negative to create a bigger stretch and a bigger contraction as I bring my hands together at the top like a fly. I just like it much better. So for bench, I would probably go triceps of death and slash close grip bench press in general. I would go um, deficit push-ups, and I would go dumbbell bench press. Those are my three favorite for bench. And then for deadlifts, this question went way longer than I expected to answer it, uh, but it's a great question. And the question's actually not done. It was a three-part question. The deadlift one, I'm going to go with uh, stiff leg RDLs. I think I think stiff leg RDLs with a lighter, like light to moderate weight doing like, for example, actually I just did these this morning on my leg session, was floating RDLs. So you basically do a stiff leg RDL, your knees still do bend, um, and the big key with RDLs is remembering that you let the bar slide down your legs, like literally, it sounds weird, but slide down your thighs. Um, every time I say that when I'm coaching somebody and I say, let the bar slide down your thighs, I think of an old, uh, what's his name, something Cook, Dana Cook, I actually saw him live in Hollywood at uh, the comedy show. <laughs> the the he has a stand up where he like he said I think he's talking about his mom he said like every uh it's kind of like in in I think it's uh my big fat Greek wedding or maybe it's Meet the Fockers there's there's one of those things where she sprays Windex on everything like that's her like remedy for everything was well, mom says like rub your honey on your thighs and he kept saying he's like you want me to rub honey on your thighs and he kept saying it it was hilarious because you see him live but. Every time I say, let the bar slide down your thighs, I think of Dana Cook talking about rubbing honey on your thighs. So weird. Not about fitness. Sorry, guys. Anyway, letting the bar slide down your thighs is a good cue because it keeps tension in your lats. If you let the bar stray away from your thighs, now all of a sudden your shoulders are rolling forward and you have no tension in your posterior chain. You have no tension in your, your lats and you're not able to pull the bar in. Um, the other piece of that you have tension in your lats because the bar is close to your thighs. You sit back until you get the maximal stretch that you can find inside of your glutes and your hamstrings, mainly your hamstrings, before your lumbar spine curves. And this is something that I was cueing people at the uh, Best Physique Seminar we did. We had the hands-on day the second day. And one thing I was teaching them is like, when you sit back into an RDL, you have to remember that there's a point where you're no longer creating tension in your hamstrings. You're no longer creating range of motion through your lower body. You're simply rounding your lumbar spine, your lower back. So watch yourself in a mirror, film yourself next time so you can find your personal range of motion because some of it has to do with hamstring flexibility. Some of it has to do with uh, limb length. So for certain people, they can get the bar all the way to the ground, no problem. I'm actually one of these people. My body's built to where I can literally pause with the bar on the ground, huge stretch of my hamstrings, glutes, knee, a little bit of knee bend, and my lumbar spine is completely flat. So RDLs are really good for me. Stiff leg RDLs are great, but I like floating RDLs where I can go almost to the ground and I stop at my end range, which is going to be like just an inch for me. But for some people, it's just below the knee. For some people, it's just mid shin. Like basically you go until your back is still flat. You're maximally stretching your hamstrings and your glutes. So your end range of motion, stop there and hold for two seconds while creating tension in your hamstrings during the stretch phase. Like if we look at why a RDL is really beneficial compared to a lying leg curl. Not that one is better than the other, but the RDL specifically is a stretch based movement. So the emphasis is on the lengthening of the muscle. There's a stretch shortening cycle. Well, during the stretch phase of that stretch shortening cycle, the RDL kind of wears the crown. So um, I like the floating RDL. Take a barbell, stiff like deadlift, go light to moderate weight. Go as low as you can, slow negative, pause at the bottom, create as much tension. Um, I don't think negatives are necessarily better than like negative training. We have a question about that that we'll hopefully get to today. But negative training isn't like the holy grail like some people make it believe. But I do think there is times and places where it's useful. And this is one of them because it teaches you how to keep your back flat while contracting your lower body maximally. So my first choice for the deadlift is going to be the RDL. My second choice is going to be, this might sound abnormal to most, but the barbell rollout. Um, if you do a barbell rollout properly, and this is where we're going to go with like barbell weighted plates on the side, so you're not doing like an ab wheel because the weight on the sides is actually going to help you contract your lats because now it's not just a core movement, it's a lat movement and it's a glute movement um, and it's a hip stability, core stability movement. So 
you get into a position, push up on the bar, like 25 pound plates on the sides is, is enough for most people. It's some more than enough for some and create as much tension in your glutes as you can. Squeeze your butt, crunch your hips down. So almost like tuck your tailbone. So you're now you're having like a posterior pelvic tilt, rib cages pulled down, glutes are firing maximally. You're on your knees, not on your toes. You're not trying to impress anybody. And then you roll out slowly. And on this one, for some people, you will literally go uh, like, like if, you, if I'm looking at my hand raised up right now, it's raised up at my forehead. So imagine I'm facing the ground. I could roll out to my forehead or I can roll out all the way till my elbows are locking out by my ears. So basically nose touching the floor. It depends on your range of motion and your lat flexibility. I have very tight lats. It's something I've always needed to work on more. So I usually don't go all the way to the floor personally. I can, but I lose tension in my lats when I do that. And I start curling, uh, like kind of curling my upper back. If you roll out and you crush the bar, keep bending the bar, keep tensioning your lats, keep your rib cage down, go as far as you can while actually keeping your rib cage down and your hips neutral. This is the biggest thing. Your hips have to stay in extension. If you are not locking out your hips, you are not going to get the benefit of this exercise because you need to create hip stability. You need to create glute tension. Your hip needs to be locked out completely. So from your shoulders to your knees is one straight line. Roll it as far as you can. That's all core, right? Rib cage down. You're creating maximal tension. You have to brace. And as you come in, you exhale and you pull with your lats. So you don't push your hips back and break the hips, meaning you are no longer in extension of your hips. Your hips are no longer locked out because you're pushing your hips back because it's difficult. Instead, you pull your rib cage down harder, exhale, flex the abs, and actually flex your lats like you're doing a straight arm pull down. So now you're doing a very good hip glute core stability drill while practicing the stretch phase of your lats and the straight arm pull down of your lats. Really, really good exercise that I actually think applies to deadlift quite a bit. Third one. She didn't even ask me for three, did she? (laughs) She said, I don't know why, but for some reason I thought there was like, oh, it's the big three bent squat deadlift. For some reason I thought she asked me for three exercises per compound. So that made this answer a lot longer, but I'm going to go, I'm going to keep it going. So we have the, uh, barbell rollout. We have the stiff leg RDL, and then I'm just going to say rack pulls for the last one. Um, simply because we got to touch on the lockout, right? So the floating RDL is going to help at the bottom. I think the rollout is going to help with your stability during the whole entire movement in general. Cause I think a lot of people get sloppy with deadlifts and they can't create tension in their core, their glutes, or their lats while deadlifting. And that's key. And the last one I'm going to choose is going to be, oh, it's hard. I actually almost want to choose hip thrust because I think the hip thrust is such a good glute movement and can help with explosive hip drive. Like if you can create a lot of glute strength through the the hip thrust, I think you can bump your deadlift up quite a bit. And I've seen it with clients quite a bit. Um, But I'm going to choose a rack pull because it helps people's lockout so much. The rack pull is where you start with the bar in a rack either just below or just above the knees. It kind of depends where you want to start from. Um, Usually in a wider grip, but what you're going to do, there's snatch grip uh, rack pull and there's regular grip rack pull. Basically, you're only moving from your knee up. And the cool thing about that is we can overload it. So now you can usually lift 1.5 to two times as much as you can from the floor, which helps you with that sticking point. Because a lot of times people will deadlift, they'll get it halfway up, and then they kind of start shaking the weight up and they can't lock out their knees or their hips. This helps with that. So I got to throw that one out there. How much extra volume should be added to these? If the lift, the primary compound lift is taking about a half an hour to train. How much time do you have in the gym? I would say if you're going over two hours, you're pushing it. If you're a competitive power lifter, I think honestly one to two hours is not unrealistic for your training sessions. So it depends. Like I would personally say she, she ended up saying too, like I train four days a week. Should I add a fifth day for extra accessory work or leave it at four? I would probably leave it at four and I would just get more specific with your accessory works, uh, accessory exercises. I would have a a bench squat deadlift and then whatever lift is your weakest, have a second day. I I usually don't recommend doing a second deadlift day because I think it's, it's a such a neurologically draining lift when you're going heavy and it's, it's very compromising of your low back. But if you're like pick your bench or your squat or alternate them like macro cycle to micro or yeah, macro cycle to macro cycle would be smart. Um, I'm sorry, mesocycle to mesocycle. So basically every program, every block, you can vary those, which one you're doing, but I would pick one of those and have a the, your fourth day be that, and then have accessory work after each. So you do bench, squat, dead, bench, for example, or 
it would be more like squat bench, dead squat, or dead bench, squat bench, basically upper, lower, upper, lower, conjugate method style. I would do whatever you have as your, like if you're doing bench twice, I would have a speed day. And what you could actually do is you could do bench, squat, deadlift, and then have a uh, power day. So you do bench and squat, but they're both speed speed squat and speed bench. It's not super neurologically taxing, but it does help quite a bit because it's very neurologically beneficial. It can help strength quite a bit. That's why the West Side Conjugate guys did it. Um, and then you just place a ton of volume accessory work afterwards. Like realistically, if you picked one exercise for each lift, put that after and then put like supplementary stuff after that. So if your step up is your main accessory, have that afterwards for four sets. And then after that, you have like pump work. So you still do need to do tricep pushdowns. Um, you still do need to do walking lunges or calf raises or hanging knee raises and farmer carries. Shit like that that you can superset and put in a circuit. Put those afterwards and I think you would be totally fine. So I hope that answers the question. I love this Instagram name. For the love of shred. All about the shreds. How would you structure a workout for a woman as opposed to a man? The main differences here, and I think it's funny, like I think that there's some people that say it's dramatically different and there's some people that say it's not different at all. You guys can all do the same thing. And they're both right, but they're both wrong because they're speaking in absolutes and I absolutely fucking hate that. Um, sorry for the language, but I, I really just do hate when people get so dogmatic that they're like, no, this is the way. You can't do that. They have to do this or they can always do the same thing. It's like, no, that's not the case. Like, it's a, It depends. I can build a workout program that touches on everything. Can a man and a woman do it? 100%. It's going to be totally fine. And I have a lot of people that do that. Um, but if I have the choice, I'm going to absolutely change them slightly. Now, if we look at the skeleton behind of a good program, it's not going to change much. And what I mean by that is everybody should be doing some form of the compound lifts. Everybody should be focusing on exercise selection and execution. So how are you doing the movements? What movements work best for you, right? Front squat versus back squat versus box squat. Um, reverse lunge versus walking lunge, like Bulgarian split squat. Like we're all doing unilateral squats, but which one matches your biomechanics better kind of thing? that allows you to execute it best. Um, and from there, we look at volume. Everybody needs to hit a certain amount of volume. In hindsight, it's kind of like a big range, but everybody needs to prioritize volume and intensity in order to elicit change. And then from there, we can start tweaking things. But the the where, where things kind of change is two places. Uh, the first one is going to be exercise selection for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are some major differences inside of the hip of a female and a male. Obviously, it makes sense because of how we were um, just the evolution of a human being in uh, birth and things like that. Um, I can't, I think it's called the Q angle, but it's, it's going out of my mind right now. But there's basically a different angle inside of men to women's hip knee ratio. Now, that can determine the style of deadlift that works better for some people, the style of squat that works better for somebody. It's kind of like majoring in the minor and it, it doesn't play a role too much. It just means that you have to have freedom of width, right? So like if somebody goes to a front squat, don't tell them like your feet have to be hip width apart or at this 45 degree angle or turn your toes 10 degrees out. Like tell them to walk up to the bar, get comfortable and, and do a squat. That's where they should be. Like realistically, because they've done studies on close stance versus wide stance, and there's actually not too much of a difference at all in quad activity. Um, and some studies showed none. So it's more about like where do you feel comfortable and where can you create more load, more volume, and a bigger stretch on the quads. That's going to help you grow quads. Now, anyway, besides that, which I don't pay too much attention to, um, exercise selection is going to be dependent on what the person wants. So like if we're looking at um, – I don't necessarily, actually, this is a lie, but I was going to say, okay, let's say men. I actually do want bigger glutes. <laughs> Sounds weird. Um, but after having knee surgery, my entire lower body shrank. So I'm like glute, hamstring, and quad three times a week. Let's grow. But uh, most men aren't, don't come to me and say, hey, I want bigger glutes. A lot of women do. A lot of women say, I want bigger glutes. Uh, men want bigger quads sometimes. But mainly men want bigger biceps, bigger chest, bigger traps, um, bigger shoulders, Women usually want bigger glutes, better abs, um, triceps more than biceps, shoulders in general more than chest. Um, and, and more women now are liking uh, back muscles too, which I think is great. I think 
I think back musculature is sexy and I think it's not only sexy, but it's important um, for health and stability and strength. But that's going to change my exercise selection completely, right? Like if somebody is telling me like, oh, I want bigger glutes, I might choose a sumo deadlift or even a hip thrust as a compound lift instead. But if a guy is just like, I just want to get strong. All right, what deadlift can you lift the heaviest? Trap bar. Okay, that's what we're going with. Conventional on plates. Cool. That's what we're going with. You want to build strength. You don't care about your glute size. So it's different. Um, Same thing with the volume aspect, right? Like, so for two reasons, number one, I might still have guys do hip thrusts and I do often, but I might not put as much volume and emphasis on it as I would for females because they're more focused on glutes, right? Like that's an easy, easy one. I might not put a ton of hip abduction work in a guy's program. I'll put like the minimal effective, even just a couple sets because they need to work that function of the hips, external rotation and abduction. But for a female, it also builds their glutes. So I might put twice as many sets there. So exercise selection and volume kind of go hand in hand. And it's like, okay, what exercises are we choosing to target the right muscles? And then how much volume and emphasis are we putting there? Uh, I might have a woman do curls once a week just because they need to build strength in their biceps to help their pull-ups, for example. But I might put them in two to three times a week for men just because we're aesthetically trying to grow the bicep and we want more volume there. So I think exercise selection does change quite a bit. More so from like somewhat from a structural standpoint, um, but that's really just applying to like the squat and the deadlift in my opinion. Um, but it's also changing depending on what they want. Aesthetically, we want different things and that's okay. So I'm going to change the exercise selection based on what you want to work on. The other part of that too is what can you do, right? Like, so I can put a a weighted chin up on most men's programs that are, are advanced, right? Or a chin up in general, but the amount of women I can put a chin up, let alone a weighted chin up on their program is far less. I do have women who do weighted chin ups and I do have a lot of women who do chin ups. A lot of women started with pull downs and we built up to that, but it's just obvious like men have bigger upper bodies. Men have a stronger upper body frame and we do more upper body training because we want to grow our upper body. So we can typically do more weight on a chin up, more volume on a chin up. That's going to change. So for a man, I might have my vertical pull be a wide grip weighted chin up. But for a woman, I might have a neutral grip pull down because neutral grip feels best on them and they can load the pull down in that vertical pulling motion more than they could a chin up. Just makes sense. So there's a lot of differences there. And then the last piece I will throw out on this one is I might change actually two things. Number one, I might change the total volume because if we look at if we if we look at accomplishing the right amount of volume from a actual mathematical equation. So load times reps times sets perspective, then at that point, what we are doing is men are going to have an easier time getting higher volumes because we lift more weight in average, right? There are women who are stronger than men, but in general, men are typically bigger, have more muscles, so they can lift a little bit heavier on most of the lifts. Therefore, doing a bench press, I might only have to do you know, me doing three sets of 10 is different than a female doing three sets of 10 from a volume perspective. Um, or me doing three sets of five even, right? So me doing three sets of five might be equal volume-wise to three sets of 10 for a female because I'm lifting so much heavier. So for women, we might be able to increase volume a little bit. Add to that, there are some hormonal differences, I believe tied to like estrogen levels that actually allow women to recover a little bit faster, which may lead to them handling more volume. Um, So there's the combination of men actually lifting more load in general, like statistically as a whole, usually, um, I don't want to say women don't lift heavy because there's plenty of women. I've had women deadlift more than a lot of my guy clients, but the point is, is that plays a role in how much volume we can give. We might give a woman more volume because she's lifting lighter, plain and simple. So the total volume actually ends up adding up, but it's easier to count sets per muscle per week. So we might add a little bit more volume there. Um, the other side of that is because women do tend to recover a little bit faster, which could again be tied to this hormonal difference, but it could also be tied to the fact that they don't lift as much weight in general. Um, quote unquote, therefore they can recover a little bit faster. But I've seen this firsthand in person. Like my women client are like ready to go. Like they're done, done with something. And I have to be like, Hey, like let's slow down. Let's, let's take it, like take a little break. I want you to lift heavy. Cause we know if we rush rest periods, the amount of weight we're going to be able to lift is going to lower a little bit. And that's going to cause a drop in volume, which is not what we want. Um, but if a female can be ready to go quicker, what, who am I to stop them completely, right? I don't want them to rush through their break. But for men, it's like, hey, come on, let's go. It's been three minutes. Come on, man, get off your phone. <laughs> like, ready to go again. Um, so that's I've seen that anecdotally, and there is some eh, not super 
convincing research, but there is some research just because there hasn't been a ton of research done on it. Um, there is some research that shows that that might be a hormonal thing. Joe Mike Paul, the man with three first names. Hope all's well, brother. This is uh, a former mentor client of mine. Shout out to Joe Mike Paul. I love saying his name like that. Joe Mike Paul. Um, great guy. Do you ever have a client that tells you a movement isn't hard enough? I didn't even realize, but this is like almost all training. Do we have any nutrition questions here? I don't think we have a single, we have one macros question. This is rare. Usually it's full of nutrition. So this is like the training episode. Do you ever have a client that tells, I'm going to cut out. <laughs> okay. I keep cutting off the story. I think I am going to cut out the nutrition question and we're going to do a full nutrition podcast and a full training podcast because I think this is all training. Um, anyway, do you ever have a client that tells you a movement isn't hard enough, but your intent, which has been communicated, is a lighter weight, control tempo, tempo, positional emphasis, curious your experience and thoughts? I've experienced this so many times. Um, a good example of this is the push-up. Like I'll say, hey, we're doing eight push-ups. And they're like, fuck, I can do 25. Why am I doing eight push-ups? If I'm in person with them, this is a lot easier. But I can, I can still communicate this effectively to most people. But if we take a push-up, and instead of just doing a push-up, and now we go, okay, I want you to spread your... And I really do think everybody, if you are listening to this podcast and you are not driving in your car, I think you should stop and do a push-up with me right now. Um, I'm not doing a push-up, but you should do a push-up with my words. Um, get on the floor, get, get into a push-up position. We're holding the top of the push-up position. What I want you to do is I want you to spread your fingers out as wide as you can. So now you have a, a big gap between your fingers, right? You don't need to spread to the point where your hands start to crumble in, but flat palm on the floor, fingers spread. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to squeeze your glutes, you're going to squeeze your quads, and you're going to pull your rib cage down. So now you've kind of tucked your tailbone, you've created that posterior pelvic tilt, you've created that rib cage down that created that tension in your abs, quads, glutes, everything is tight. We're creating full body tension. This is a full body movement. From there, you're going to push the floor away. Push it away so your shoulders actually protract. So now my scapula is moving forward and my upper back is rounding. So now I'm in an active press. This is an isometric active contraction. We're holding there for a second. This is the proper position for the top of the movement. Now that we are going to go into the lowering phase, what I want you to do, with your fingers spread out, I want you to corkscrew the floor. So you're turning counterclockwise or clockwise on the right, counterclockwise on the left. You're turning outward. <laughs> Let's just say that. Spread fingers. You're twisting out. You're corkscrewing the floor out. You're going to see your shoulder externally rotate. Your lat is going to fire and your shoulders are going to pack down. So now, instead of me going elbows out wide, my elbows are at a 45 degree angle from my torso. I'm twisting the floor as I'm going into the floor. And what you want to think about as you're lowering into the push-up is you want to row yourself into the floor. You're going to pull yourself into the floor. So I'm corkscrewing my hands out. I have a wide finger spaced grip. My elbows are coming in and my lats are pulling my shoulder blades down. So my lats are firing during the negative. I pull myself into a position where my chest is stretched. My scapula is retracted and depressed. So it's pulled back and down. My lats are fired. I'm still creating tension, pushing my hands into the floor, acting as if I'm literally turning the earth. And then I'm going to push all the way away and I'm going to emphasize pushing the floor away at the top so my shoulders roll forward, my scapula protracts and my upper back rounds while still keeping tension in my core glutes and hamstring or core glutes and quads. Do a push-up like that. Rewind it back and try it a couple times and I promise you five push-ups feels like 20. I promise you. It feels harder because you create tension in the right places. So sometimes you have to overly emphasis overly emphasize how you are coaching a movement. You have to really go into the details and the weeds of like, how are you moving every single piece of this movement? How are you lowering yourself? Like most people do not fire their lats during a push-up, but you should. So if you can teach people how to do stuff like that, I think it goes a long way. Videos, uh, communicating properly, uh, speaking to them, doing it in person, that's huge. So now my experience is that this is like the emphasis of my coaching. When I write programs, there's cues. When I coach people in person, I'm cueing the shit out of them. I don't count your reps. I cue your reps to make them perfect. I want you to feel your body working, and I think that's very, very key. So um, I have a lot of clients that have gone through that, though, um, and I just really overemphasize that, that need to prioritize 
how you are moving and how muscles are firing, honestly. Um, I teach them the stretch shortening cycle. I teach them all the muscles that are incorporated with a movement. And I teach them that, you know, controlling a tempo, your positional emphasis, it's important. Um, I think those things come before volume. Now, I think volume plays a big role in hypertrophy. I just think that people glorify it and they forget that exercise selection for your in, the individual person and learning how to create tension and execute a movement properly and, and activate the muscles accordingly that should come before volume because then when you add volume, you're making it effective volume, which is a big key. So many people, they just forget that. And it, it, going back to the uh, individual design series that I'm, I'm doing, I really wish I would have put exercise selection and in, uh, exercise execution f- as number two instead of volume. And I think a lot of people saw that volume was number two and they're going to take that as volume is more important. And I don't think it is. And I tried to make that clear in, in part three. Um I also don't think there's ever an order of operations because everybody needs to work on a different thing. If somebody comes to me and they have great exe- excuse me, execution, don't drink sparkling water while you're recording a podcast. Um, if they come to me with great execution, even if they don't realize it, they've never practiced activating a muscle, mind-muscle connection, execution and stuff, but they just, they just naturally have a good connection to their muscles, I might not really focus on that because they're getting what they need out of it and I know that their volume is going to be effective and it's not going to be junk volume. Um, but like I have had clients, um, he was said he was just curious on my experience and thoughts. My experience and my thoughts are like it's definitely there. It's definitely important and I think we just need to emphasize over-delivering the coaching aspect of that. Um, getting on calls, shooting videos, being in person, writing more cues in your programming, whatever it may be, you just have to teach that um, and just repeat it over and over again how important it is. And sometimes you using yourself as an example, like, man, like I do eight reps and it smashes me, but this is why. And like you can think of certain things, like certain cues work better for other people. Um, for me, especially on a drag curl, but when I do a curl, I think about smushing my elbow to my shoulder, I don't know why, but that feels like I'm compacting my bicep and it fucking just lights up. Uh, My hamstrings, when I do a leg curl, same thing. When I get to the top of a leg curl, I fully flex my knee. So I actually go through the full range of motion. And at the top, I always pause and I imagine smushing my knee up to my hip and compacting that muscle. And as soon as I do that, it just fires every time. So finding a cue that works for people is really key. Um, and then you can just repeat it. And you sometimes you have to use key after key after key, or sorry, cue after cue after cue in order to get that from them. Um, on a straight arm or a, a seated cable row or a seated dumbbell row or a one-arm dumbbell row, any kind of row, as soon as I heard um, let your shoulder roll forward at the bottom, it got me a huge lat stretch. And then it was like as you row – don't think about elbow flexion. Think about dragging your elbow to your back pocket. And at first I was like, what? That's weird. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to worry about how much. Because a lot of people row and they think of like range of motion, quote unquote. So they row and they think like the more bent my elbow is, the more flexed my elbow joint is, the more range of motion that is. Well, really, the more you bend your elbow, the more your rear delts and traps start to take over and your biceps because you shrug it up. So if you want to target your lats, you actually have to keep your your shoulder depressed so your traps don't fire and you have far less, barely any elbow flexion and you're actually just dragging the dumbbell towards your back pocket. And as soon as I did that and heard that, my lats lit up. And now I'll choose a horizontal row like a one-arm dumbbell row or a one-arm cable row over a uh, lat pull-down or a straight-arm pull-down for my lats any day because that fires my lats way more. Um, It's just easier for me. So sometimes it's just siphoning through all the different cues you can think of and finding what clicks with that person. All right, Kevin's journey. Let's say I only have 45 minutes to work out while on a cut. What type of workout will be best? Upper-lower, five-day split, ETC, so et cetera. Um, my opinion on this, this will be an easy answer. I would say if you are, it, it's going to be one of two things. It's either A, if you can be in the gym six days a week, it's going to be an upper lower alternating split. If you can only be in the gym four days a week, it is going to be a full body dynamic training program. So the full body dynamic training program is going to be much more for people who don't have a ton of muscle mass or don't care to have a ton of muscle mass. They're not really worried about maintaining muscle mass on the cut. It's more of like, hey, I want to get stay strong. I want to feel good. I just want to lose weight. For those people, I do really like four-day splits. Um, it means you're not in the gym so much. We can prioritize diet to do the weight loss, probably carb cycle a little bit. So throw higher carbs on the workout days, low carbs on the non-workout days. Just walk on your off days. Um, it's much more simplistic. And on those 
full body training sessions, we're much more dynamic. So we're doing more movement patterns that are just dynamic and functional, uh, more athletic, quote unquote, which I really enjoy. I think they're fun. And I think they're more applicable to real life, joint health, just general weight loss, the average individual. If you're somebody like me who is like, I really want to maintain as much muscle as possible during a cut, I'm going to go with a six-day upper-lower split. Um, and it's going to be auto-regulated. So what I mean by that is you might go like train, train, rest, train, train, rest, or you might go train, 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 rest, or you might go six days in a row training and then rest the sixth day. Um, and your rest days might just be walking and cardio to burn more calories. But the point is, is it's six days per micro cycle. Um, if you can do it in seven days, perfect. If not, your micro cycle, your quote unquote training week might be nine days or 10 days, whatever it may be. Um, but I like a six-day upper-lower split because you can do four days of hypertrophy and two days of strength, which I think is a really good balance for maintaining as much muscle as possible during a cut. So if we look at um, – and I actually have a program just like this inside the Boom Boom Elite that's perfect for this. Um, it, it's six days per microcycle, and you have upper-lower, upper-lower, upper-lower. The first four upper-lower, so you have two days of upper, two days of lower – that are all hypertrophy-focused. So light to moderate weights, we are going for high reps. So one day, I think it's like 8 to 12. One day is like 12 to 20. Um, and we're just focusing on the pump. We're focusing on tension. We're focusing on mind-muscle connection. We're focusing on getting a lot of volume in. Um, and then the last four, two days, which are one lower, one upper, is going to be strength dominant. So it's like we're staying under eight reps. The compound lift is going heavy. You need that neurological stimulus to maintain muscle mass during a cut. It's very, very helpful. But you also need volume. And if your goal is specifically aesthetics, it should be about two-thirds of your volume that is hypertrophy-focused versus one-third that is strength-focused. If your main goal is strength, it should be flipped around. Um, but for most people looking to cut or lose weight, listen to this podcast, you're probably more aesthetically driven, um, which is cool. That's how, I mean, that's how I am too. I like being strong, but my main focus is usually aesthetics. And that works really well to maintain muscle. And it's a really good split. Like it's not too draining because if you have six days a week, you can get it done in 45 minutes, which is why I, I said this for you because you said you only have 45 minutes. So for you, this will work great because you have you can go in, smash weights for 45 minutes, really easy on upper lower split. And then you have one day of strength, which is going to be like a heavy compound and a couple of accessory exercises. That's it. But because you have such a high frequency, so this is another thing I like about it. You have a high frequency because you have six days, three up, three upper, three lower. You have more days per microcycle to get in exercises in volume, which means you don't have to do much, too much per session. And there's actually a cap, which is another reason why I like this. There's a cap of volume. They're doing research on this, so it's still kind of inconclusive. But there's a cap to how much volume, effective volume you can do per session because there's a drop-off point of muscle protein synthesis while we're training in a single session. So as you are working out, once you pass a certain amount of sets, I actually want to say it's like eight to 10 sets in a single workout per muscle group. Muscle protein synthesis starts to take a dip. So you're more ben it's going to be more beneficial to do like 8 to 10 sets instead of trying to cram fucking 20 sets in there. Do the normal amount of sets. It might be even less than 8 to 10 to be honest with you. But do the normal amount of sets and then do it more often because then, then you can have better muscle protein synthesis across the entire week, across the entire month. So I think that's super beneficial. It's also easier to get more volume in because you're doing it more frequently. You don't have to have so many exercises per session, which makes the sessions shorter, easier to fit in 45 minutes. Another reason why I personally like it because I am a busy person. Um, and then lastly, I just think there's merit to having high frequency during fat loss because it's just more stimulation throughout the week. Um, it's not as draining per session, but... Uh, throughout the week more often, you're just, you're hitting the muscles, you're burning calories, you're building muscle, you're maintaining muscle, you're creating that stimulus. And I think that's super important. Um, so that's, that's definitely what I would do. All right. Amanda Sugin, when we talk about sets per muscle group per week, for example, you mentioned for intermediate 15 to 20 sets, how many reps are we talking about per set? How do we determine our reps? This is a really good question that I'm surprised that we haven't answered yet. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the beauty of about it. Um, because if, and this can be a confusing topic for some people because not all sets are created equal, which I agree with. We're creating a different stimulus with different things. But what the research shows is that volume equated is going to match up regardless. So if we look at the studies, they did like 10 sets of three and three sets of 10 or something like that. And the volume was different from a rep perspective, obviously, but the volume was the same from a weight moved perspective. So if we do 
I don't know the math, but if you do 10 sets with 200 versus, or 10 reps with 200 versus three reps with 400 and you equate the sets to make sure that your total volume moved, like total weight moved in the week is the same. It doesn't matter for hypertrophy. Um, the reason we call it hypertrophy zone when we get past that eight plus rep range is because it's more efficient. Um, we do get more muscle damage that way. We do get less neurological damage from those higher reps and more muscle damage. Muscle damage is going to lead to more muscle growth and less neurological damage is going to lead to an easier way to fit in more volume and frequency because you're not as wrecked from a nervous system standpoint from doing those 10 rep sets. So because of that hypertrophy work, quote unquote, has kind of been coined at that eight, 10, 12 plus rep range, um, whereas strength is like five and below. So it doesn't really matter because if you are counting your sets and some sets are in the threes and some sets are in the twelves, your total weight moved, which is true volume is going to be equated regardless, relatively close and total volume is going to be hit. So if you count sets, the weight use during those sets because if you're again lower weight lower rep you're probably going to do more weight higher rep you're probably going to do less weight by the end of the week when you look at the total sets it ends up equating from a total volume moves perspective because of that discrepancy of weight per rep so i hope that makes sense but basically it ends up just equaling out um so it doesn't matter you just have to count sets per muscle group per week and it's basically stimulating the muscle that many times. Um, she had a few more questions. Um, one is a uh, nutrition, so we're going to save that. One is a training, so we're going to answer that. Best things you have found to help with DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, Magnesium is going to help. Um, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Uh, Magnesium is going to help. I mean, you could take an Epsom salt bath, obviously a lot of water. I think people underestimate sodium. Sodium really does help recovery because it helps performance and stay hydrated. If we look at sodium in general, it's going to help hydrate you and it's going to help hydrate your muscle. That's going to help recovery because you're not going to get as damaged um, or you're going to just bounce back quicker. Uh, Creatine, like if we're really talking about like tactics, it's honestly more... Like creatine, magnesium for supplements, sodium for nutrition, obviously carbs and protein, but I don't think I have to say that. Water, I don't think I have to say that. Um, And then sleep. Like I think a lot of people are like, how do I recover faster? And it's like less neurological and mental stress and more sleep. And there's been studies that show that those two things outweigh things like massages and compression pants and shit like that by a landslide. So doing that is really, really huge. Um, so I would just focus on, I mean, take magnesium if you're not. I think it's a great supplement for you. Um, fish oil helps with inflammation, so that might help. Creatine is, is a wonder supplement, which um, we are actually affiliated in, uh, in relation with Creapier now. Um, shout out to Creapier. Those guys actually reach out to me. They've heard me talk about them multiple times. And we are now a uh, quote-unquote athlete slash sponsored company. Um, Creapier does not sell to the general public. They sell in bulk to mass companies. So what I want you to do is make sure that you are supporting Creapier, you're supporting creatine research, and you're, you're going and you're finding a brand that supports Creapier, which means that they actually use Creapier in their ingredients. I personally use Muscle Feast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, it's it's tested and ranked the best on Labdoor, and they also use Creapier. But Creapier is the supplement used in, I want to say 90% or more, I'll ask uh, the guys I talked to over there, um, 90% or more of the studies actually done on creatine monohydrate. So when you see these advantages and these big benefits, it's usually from literally Creapure and it's a trademarked company in Germany. You cannot get anything else uh, that is Creapure unless it comes from them. Um, So really important to check those guys out. But that's going to help a ton. And then I just think literally like emotional, mental stress and sleep are the biggest things. Now, if you have DOMS for longer than two to three days after a workout, I think you're probably tapping into MRV, maximum recoverable volume, which means you're probably pushing into overreaching. You can stay there for a bit, but if it doesn't clear up after a couple weeks, like you keep getting that two to three day soreness, you need to bring your total volume down because you're overreaching. Sometimes it's good to push into that maximum volume where you get really fucking sore and you stay sore, but then you got to taper back because you need to have that super compensation effect where your body has time to actually heal and build. Um, But... DOMS is a good thing in my opinion. I think it is a good proxy for muscle growth. It just shouldn't linger around for more than two or three days. If it is, you're probably just doing too much or you just really need to focus on stress and sleep. I think those are the biggest things. Carmen Spitzer, did you watch the CrossFit Games and how did you like the new format? Um, So I did not. Um, 
at all. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I didn't watch the CrossFit game, so I don't even know what the new format is. Um, I usually do watch CrossFit games because I really do enjoy watching it. I think it's awesome. Um, my wedding's in two days. So <laughs> it, we did, like as I'm recording this, it just happened last weekend. Um, I had a few friends and a mentor client in the CrossFit games competing. Um, so I wish I could have watched it just to see them. Um, but I couldn't just cause we were just prepping for the wedding. We were so busy. I was like, the last thing I can do is try to sit down and watch the CrossFit games. Um, she had another question. I'm trying to see if it is tra- training or nutrition. I think it is training. It's kind of both. What if you gain weight easily, but you are not gaining muscle easily hormonal thing. If training stimulus is right, what to do only having a slight surplus doing a carb calorie cycle. It's so individual. I can't even tell you, to be honest with you. Um, if you gain weight easy, but you're not gaining muscle easily, I don't think it is a, uh, I, I don't think it's a training thing. I don't even necessarily think it's a nutrition thing. Um, it's prob if you were in just a slight surplus, you should be gaining strictly muscle unless you were over fat. So if somebody is t- too high of body fat percentage and they go into even a small surplus, they're going to gain body fat. If they are at true maintenance and they are at very lean, going into small surplus is going to lead to net muscle growth. Um, carb calorie cycling isn't going to change much because if weekly calories are equated, it, it's indifferent. Um, doing like deficits and diet breaks, maybe that might help. But the reality is it's so individual. I can't say it's most likely a hormonal and or stress factor going on. And I can't answer that unless I worked with you directly. Um, because that's something that would literally be because your body is just too stressed out and it won't allow you to lose weight. Um, and it keeps gaining. I think that's it for today. We have one more question, but I think I kind of already answered it. So we'll finish with this. If I have any more thoughts, Lindsay Sands, online coaching cues to make your clients push and engage the way they should tips for online training your opinion on the best progression program for powerlifting your opinion on cardio when and how much she didn't have any question marks so i thought it was like one question but it's like eight put together in a sentence online coaching cues to make your clients push and engage the way they should i already touched on that with joe mike paul the man with three names question um i just think you have to over deliver in the cues of your programming i think you need to communicate with your clients on how they should actually effectively work that movement um and possibly film videos if you need to educate 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 that's the only way to do it um tips for online training i have too many i can't give you any on here i think the best thing you can do is over deliver um study get certifications learn more learn more learn more and then just apply and meet the client where they're at um i think the you cannot be an online trainer unless you are really, really fucking good at programming. I think you can be an in-person trainer and be decent at best at programming. Obviously, if you're great, it's going to be better, but there's a lot of people who are not great at programming whatsoever and they get away with in-person training because the reality is, is if you know enough to give somebody a workout and not hurt them, they can leave their sweating. They're going to burn calories. They're probably going to lose weight with you. They may even build muscle, but you really don't have to do much outside of that hour you are with them besides make them sweat, make them smile and make them burn calories. And I think that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people pay trainers just for the interaction and that's fine. I know I had clients that didn't care to lose weight. They didn't even need to lose weight. They just loved going to the gym and hanging out with me and getting a good workout in. I think for online coaching, you need to be able to program and periodize properly. Otherwise, a client is not going to get results because they can't follow something week after week. Um, So I think it it comes down to like tips for online training is like literally just master the art of program design. Your opinion on the best progressions program for powerlifters. I personally think that West Side Conjugate Method is the best. Upper lower split one day is dynamic slash repetition effort. One day is max effort, both for upper and lower, like I talked about earlier with the first question. I, I just love that. I think that's the best. Um, your opinion on cardio and cardio when how much? Um, my opinion on cardio is do as little as possible. So I prefer neat. So if you can get up and go on a walk two to three times a day, I think that's going to do better. Let the diet do the work and just train to maintain muscle. Um, if you do need to add cardio, I think you should do it with walking, possibly adding a weighted vest and it should be about 30 to 40 minutes. So going outside, wearing a weighted vest, getting out in nature, I think is actually great. Um, and just keeping at a casual pace, it's going to promote better recovery if anything. And it's not too stressful on the nervous system and it still burns a lot of calories. I really do think that's the best neat. And then some very low intensity cardio is definitely my go-to. Um, if you have a timeline, sometimes adding in some hit helps. So I recently just added in two to three hit sessions per week, six rounds of 15 on 45 off on the assault bike, um, post leg session. Um, but I also, uh, my, my coach actually bumped carbs up when we did that. So we added a small 15 grams of carbs 
and then added cardio, which it sounds like nothing, 15 grams, but it gave me fuel to get that shit done. And because I had fuel to get it done, I did it harder. And I've actually uh, experienced two new low weigh-ins this week after we did that. Um, so sometimes hit is appropriate, but I don't think hit is appropriate if you're in too big of a deficit. Um, so you have to be careful. And we've been doing a very conservative approach, so it worked. But that w- that's how I would go with cardio. I think neat and low intensity, um, if you are doing any, is the way to go. Train to, to maintain muscle and diet to lose weight. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.